Gracious God, we thank you for your word that brings our souls and our lives to life. I pray this morning that if there's anything in what I'm about to say that has not been inspired by your Holy Spirit, that it would quickly be forgotten. And Lord, whatever has been inspired by your Holy Spirit, may it be taken into our hearts and our lives and bring our church to a deeper and fuller unity. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As we've been saying in this worship series, as Anabaptist Christians, we hold up the early New Testament church as our gold standard for faithfulness, don't we? But the interesting thing is that these past three Sundays, it's felt a little bit like looking in the mirror as we've visited church after church, grappling with familiar questions about economics, about ethnicity, about class, about sexuality, and about empire. None of these churches has been even close to perfect. And, spoiler alert, the one in Rome, (laughs) it's not going to be any different. And I feel that the wonderful news, the good news for us here this morning is that God has chosen to work through imperfect congregations like Antioch, like Philippi, Corinth, Rome, and East Chestnut to be channels of God's lavish grace and welcome to the world around us. Now, until now, all of the churches that we have visited were either planted, nurtured, or visited by Paul. But not the one in Rome. Not the one in Rome, which Paul only visits three years after he writes the letter to the Romans, which we heard read today. So who actually starts the church in Rome? And this is where Bible study gets really exciting and interesting. Well, Acts 2.10 tells us that at Pentecost, there are visitors from Rome who witness those amazing events and hear Peter preach about Jesus. And it is believed that these are the pilgrims who then take the gospel back to Rome with them when they return home. Now, during the 30s and the 40s in the first century, most of the followers of Jesus in Rome are Jews who keep on worshiping in their local synagogues. At this point, they're simply regarded as a Jewish sect, a group rather than as a separate faith or a separate religion. But then in 49, in the year 49, something happens. Jewish rioting breaks out in Rome. 
and it's believed that it's probably directed against Jesus-believing Jews. Emperor Claudius has enough of all of these Jews, and he throws all of them, God-believing or Jesus-believing, out of Rome. And that's, by the way, how we ended up meeting Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth last Sunday. All right, so think about this. Overnight, the church in Rome suddenly becomes much smaller and completely Gentile. With synagogues now closed, they start meeting in their homes, worshiping God in their homes in house churches. And without any Jewish members anymore, there's much less emphasis, for obvious reasons, on observing Jewish food laws and holy days, and much more emphasis on following Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we catch that little reference in chapter 15 today. The kingdom of God, what, it is, what is it? It's joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, in a very short time in Rome, we have a great amount of change. All right. But this is where things get complicated. Because five years later, Emperor Nero rises to the throne and allows all of the Jews to come back. And when they do, these Jewish Christians are completely scandalized by what they find in the church. Because for them, their laws, the laws of Moses about food and holy days, are their God-given boundary markers. If they're set aside, how will they be able to keep their distinctive identity? How will they ever be able to be God's contrast community to the pagan world around them? And so, very suddenly, conflict and controversy erupt in Rome in a very, very contentious period now follows. So it's in the year 56 or 57 that Paul writes a letter, Romans, to these struggling believers. That's the context for Romans. And he shares his beautiful vision for how in their great diversity they might not only stay together but thrive together in a unity that brings glory to God. You see, in the empire, everybody thought that Caesar brought diverse people together by force. In their unity, they are now going to show that Jesus, their king, brings people together by peace and grace. And I invite you now to turn to our first reading today from Romans 14 because Paul wades right into this controversy today, right into two 
key issues that are tearing the church apart. What food to eat and what holy days to keep. Now, for us sitting here in 2014, these issues of food and holy days seem, let's just say it, quite trivial, don't they? Rather small issues. But for the folks in Rome, they are crucial. And they are as explosive and polarizing as our questions about sexuality today. They're that serious. Now, in verse 1, Paul names as the weak... Imagine if I did this in our church. (laughs) Obviously, Paul didn't get seminary training in conflict. But I, I love this. Paul names as the weak... Those who only eat vegetables. Now, I know this will not please all of our vegetarians here at East Chestnut. And then he names as strong those who eat everything. He goes on to say that the weak judge one day to be better, more holy than another. And the strong judge all days to be the same. And then later in verse 14, he discloses that he, not surprisingly, finds himself among the strong. Now, you know, these letters were read out loud in the church. Imagine you're sitting there and you're hearing this suddenly read out loud for the very first time. Imagine that. If you are a Gentile, you're already thinking that Paul is taking your side. Yes! And if you are a Jewish Christian, you're already getting very nervous and looking to see where the door is. But then, Paul surprises and challenges absolutely everybody. Gentile liberals, he says... Stop despising those who abstain. Jewish conservatives, stop judging those who eat. And then, like a great thunderbolt, he says in verse 3, God has welcomed all of you. And just in case we missed it, another great thunderbolt comes in chapter 15, verse 7. Welcome one another, just as Christ has welcomed you. For the glory of God. What Paul is doing here, It's so easy to just fly over this. But what he is doing is taking us into the holy of holies of the gospel. And expanding on what he already explored earlier in chapter 5. That in Jesus, God's welcoming arms are opened wide to the world. Come to me. 
And broken people like me and like you are given access to God's grace, not because of what we have earned or not because we deserve it, but because our God is so lavishly good and so amazingly generous. That's the good news. And a key part of our welcoming each other, Paul says in verse 5, is to let each person, and this is very important, be fully convinced in their own minds about what is right. Do you see what he's saying? Deeply committed Christians, sincerely seeking to please and to obey God, will sometimes come out in very, very different places. Now, wait a minute. Is Paul saying that anything and everything goes in the church? Absolutely not. Remember in Antioch, Paul fiercely rebukes Peter when he stops eating with Gentiles. Why? Because this is no longer acting consistently with the truth of the gospel. But here in Rome, Paul believes that disputable matters, debatable things like food and like holy days are not central to the gospel and must not be allowed to destroy the precious unity of the church. At times like this, he says, we all need to give each other the space to be faithful to God. For as Paul says, if you think something is unclean, then it really is. And it is a sin for you to eat it. And I think in this passage, Paul is also saying very clearly, it is a sin for us to force other things to do against their conscience. To force others to do something that is against their conscience. When we do this, we are no longer, he says in chapter 15, Walking in love. Now, by now, I hope it's clear that Paul is not advocating here a kind of postmodern tolerance where he says, You believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe, and let's just leave each other alone. Instead, he's calling all of us to something much more. Demanding a forbearance modeled after God's own loving forbearance of us in Jesus Christ, a divine patience that bears our sins and weaknesses and makes possible our redemption. So, what is this forbearance? It's hanging around with each other long enough to patiently discover more of the mind of Christ together. 
on whatever question may be, be before us, even if it takes a long time. Out in Illinois, my old uh, conference minister, Chuck Newfelt, we had a very diverse conference. And he'd always get up in front of our conferences and say the same words. He would say, as long as both you and I claim Jesus Christ as Lord, I'm willing to keep studying the Bible and listening to the Holy Spirit with you, even if it takes till Jesus comes again. And he lived it out. And he showed us that with forbearance, how we hold what we believe may just be as important as what we believe. Lovingly and humbly holding what we believe may be just as important as what we believe. So you're all sitting there thinking, what does all of this mean for us here at East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church? Thank you for asking. (laughs) What are we to do? When we as sincere and devoted Christians disagree about politics, voting, or maybe not voting at all, economics, sexuality, alcohol use, diet, what are we to do? I think this passage helps to show us that our core disposition must be to keep welcoming each other as Christ has welcomed us. And to do everything in our power to preserve our church's unity, which is Christ's precious gift to us. But this is not a unity where everything goes. Notice in chapter 15, verse 3, that Paul calls us to live in harmony with each other in accordance with Jesus Christ. And this living in accordance with Jesus, in sync with Jesus, needs to be the starting point, I believe, for all of our conversations with each other. What if instead of accusing, I'm not saying this happens here, but it surely happens in the wider church, if we accuse, instead of accusing each other of being heretics, of being unbiblical, what if we all started asking each other a very simple question? Can you please help me understand how your desire to be faithful to Jesus Christ as Lord has brought you to believe what you believe? Can you please help me to understand, because I really do want to understand, how your desire to be faithful to Jesus 
has brought you to believe what you believe. Now notice that this question begins by affirming the core value that trumps all of our differences, the Lordship of Christ. Notice that it's a question that's going to take some time to answer. Maybe over a cup of coffee. Maybe at your kitchen table where deeper listening and Bible study are possible. Notice that it requires my being at least open to the possibility that I might just be wrong. And notice how it opens up the possibility that this sister or brother, after they have received our careful listening, might just ask the same question of us in return. I feel so hopeful that our listening process here at East Chestnut, these two weeks in Sunday school, can open up into this kind of deeper conversation with each other. I feel so hopeful because it's already happening. And it's already challenging all of us to share with each other why we believe what we believe. Three years ago, Tom Yoder Neufeld, who is the brother of the conference minister that I mentioned and is a New Testament scholar, was asked to come to a Mennonite World Conference gathering and to talk about the deeply held differences that are present in the global church and that we experience here in our own congregation as well. And Tom asked a very interesting question. He said, might our diversity generate God-given tensions that will serve to render all of us more faithful and help all of us to discover more of the gospel together. And then he asked this, wasn't the church in Rome deeply, deeply impoverished when all the Jewish members were expelled and it suddenly became only a Gentile church? And didn't the return of their Jewish sisters and brothers five years later help make them a church that was less comfortable but more faithful to God? Amen.